you've not met me before, my name is Jack. I am a youth leader here and I work at the church. I have done for a few years now. Um, And this morning, it's my job to continue our series in The Real Jesus. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21. Uh, If you'd like to follow on but you don't have a Bible, please, now is the time to wave your hands nice and high and someone will bring you one. If you've got one of our church red Bibles, it's page 988, page 988, Matthew chapter 21. And as we look at Matthew chapter 21, we're going to see an amazing moment in the life of the real Jesus. And we know it's amazing and we know it's important because it's actually mentioned in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all mention this moment of Jesus arriving at the city of Jerusalem. Now in the first part of Jesus, we've seen over the many, many, many weeks that we've been doing this series, um, that Jesus has been a bit coy about his identity. He's been a bit secretive. He's held his cards close to his chest. And he's been doing most of his ministry in the north of the country, in a region called Galilee. But now Jesus is heading south, and he's heading towards Jerusalem. And a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 16, there was this big moment where Peter suddenly realizes who Jesus is and he says, you're the Christ, the chosen one of God. And Jesus says, you're right, keep it quiet and we're heading to Jerusalem. And and he says several times to his followers along the way, I'm going there and I'm going there to be killed. And you you can see the, the, the... confusion on the, on the disciples' faces. They're thinking, what? You're the chosen one of God coming into the city to reign and you're going to die? But Jesus says that that's going to happen to fulfill the will of God for him. And we hit chapter 21 here and Jesus arrives at Jerusalem itself. And from about chapter 3 of Matthew right up until now, it's covered roughly three years of Jesus' life. And these last remaining chapters of the book all focus in on just one week. It's Matthew saying that the whole of this book has been building up to this last week. We're heading into the culmination of the work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we hit chapter 21, and you know what? It just doesn't resonate with us. It, it, we don't understand the text. It sounds strange. It sounds weird. Uh, it, and it doesn't help that there's a whole bunch of people in there shouting out in a foreign language, Hosanna! What the heck does that mean? When I was a brand new Christian, I was in part of a, a more traditional church at the time. And on what they call Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter they would read out this passage in Matthew and everyone would then go around saying to each other, they go up to them and one person would say, Hosanna. And the other person would then respond, Hosanna in the highest. And I was thinking, I don't know what I'm saying. What on earth does this mean? And then to top that all off, every adult member of the church got given one of these. I pinched this one from my mum, so I hope she doesn't find out. Well, she's going to hear this now, I know. Um, Every adult member would get given one of these and every child in Sunday school would make up little palm leaves and then they'd come in and we'd all do the Hosanna thing and then we'd wave these about and I'd think, oh, what are we doing? 
I don't know what this is. And so what I then did is uh, eventually I, I just went and I asked one of the youth leaders at the time, I said, what is this all about? Why are we saying these weird words? And what's with the waving of the, these things? And his helpful response to me was, we wave them for Jesus. <laughs> Great. So I took that away and I just thought, you know what? Jesus is weird. He's a weirdo. And while we're at it, in this passage, he seems really obsessed with donkeys. What's that all about? And as I was thinking about this passage to to speak on it today, I thought, hang on a moment. We're missing stuff here. It would be a bit like me if if I suddenly described the moment to you. I said, we're in a church building. And at the front of the church building, there's a guy dressed, and he looks really nervous, and he's dressed in the smartest suit he's ever worn in his life. And he's looking around, a bit sweaty, a bit like that. And then suddenly the back doors of the church swing open, and we all hear the same tune. Dum, dum, da-da, dum, dum, da-da. And in comes a woman dressed completely in white. We know exactly what's going on in that moment. But if you said that to someone from Malawi... They'd be like, what? Churches have doors? Why is she in white? What's that stupid tune? They've missed it. Or let me tell you another one. Let's put it like this. Imagine there's a bunch of girls talking. And one of the girls says, he took me out on a romantic meal. Candlelit dinner. And then along came the waiter with two glasses of champagne. And in my glass was a ring. And he got down on one knee. And all the girls go, oh my goodness. They know what's happening there. But if you said that to someone from Malawi or Mongolia, they go, what? what's happening? You've ruined that drink by putting something in it. Why is he on one knee? It doesn't make sense. They've missed the beauty of that imagery. They've missed the significance of those stories. Just like I did when I was looking at this passage as a brand new Christian. And I don't want that for us today. I don't want us to miss what Jesus is intentionally doing and declaring in this passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to just walk our way through the text together, looking at it bit by bit and unpacking what it tells us about the real Jesus and who he is. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray. Father... Please help us as we look and fix our eyes on you like we were looking at in worship and while we were singing and declaring you. Would you come and speak to us through your passage and show us who the real Jesus is? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look together. Matthew chapter 21 and we're going to start in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives... Okay, we're going to stop there just for a moment. I know it's short, but we're going to stop there. I want to ask this question. Why is Matthew giving us such geographic information? Why is he telling us about this? Why couldn't he just say, Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem, full stop, and leave it there? Well, the Mount of Olives that Matthew describes here is on the east side of the city. It's a big hill on the east of the city. And To enter into Jerusalem, Jesus would have to go down the Mount of Olives and enter in through what's known as the East Gate. Now, if you were part of Matthew's original hearers, 
you would have heard this and it would have been exciting news. You'd be, excuse me? He's coming from where? He's, where's he, what? He's entering the city from the Mount of Olives and it's significant to them because of what a prophet said in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet called Ezekiel, and you can read about this in the book which has his name. And he describes in that book that the people of God in the Old Testament were like an aborted child, bloody and dead, who God finds and says, live. And it's this beautiful picture of how God loves his people. And it goes on to say that God's people then grew up and became like a beautiful woman who God married. He's saying, I took in my people. I clothed them. I gave them good gifts of gold and silver. It's a picture of how God treats his people and loves his people and cares for them. He says, I clothed you and I blessed you. But then Ezekiel turns to the Old Testament people of God and he says, this is what you did with God's blessing. You became a whore. You used God's gifts of gold and silver and you bought yourself lovers. These gifts were given, but you oppressed the poor. You built yourself big houses. And he goes on, he says, you know what else you did? You sacrificed your own children in the fires of foreign gods. You would sacrifice your own children for your own comfort and pleasure. And God saw this and he was heartbroken, upset, devastated. He said, you know what? I just can't even bear to be around this or look at this. And Ezekiel has an image, a picture that he sees. And, and in this book, which is all about how God wants to know and love his people, but his people do horrific things. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple, the dwelling place of God with his people, and exit Jerusalem out of the east gate. But as you keep on reading through the book of Ezekiel, eventually you hit chapter 43, where there's hope. And Ezekiel, even though God's people have been wicked, they've done horrific, terrible things, we see that God says, you know what, I can't divorce my people. I'm going to call them back to myself. I'm going to love them and know them and dwell with them. And Ezekiel gets another vision where he sees a day where the glory of the Lord would return over the Mount of Olives, in through the east gate, and go straight to the temple. The Old Testament people of God, they were told he will return and he'll return from where he came. Look east to the Mount of Olives. So what's amazing here is Jesus and his disciples, they're heading to Jerusalem. It's like Jesus says, hold on boys, let's get in position. We're going east. And as he heads down the Mount of Olives, you see straight after the passage that we're looking at today, where's the first place Jesus goes? It's the temple. It's the temple. So Jesus is saying, let's enter from the Mount of Olives. Let's go down the east side. And people are like, excuse me? What's he doing? He's coming from the east, the Mount of Olives? Are you serious? 
Is he setting himself up to be the solution? Is he coming back and claiming he is the glory of God coming to the temple? I don't know how awful the things you might have done in your life are. I don't know what horrific things you might have done in the past, but the people in the Old Testament, they were killing their children as sacrifices for their own selfishness and sinfulness. And God says, I hate it, I want nothing to do with that, but I will return for my wayward people. I don't know what, how wayward you've been or how wayward you are, but God is gracious with us and he's returning and he comes from the east. Now you might be thinking, Jack, that is a lot to infer from just the first 13 words of this passage. Are you sure this is what's going on here? Well, we're going to see as we unpack the rest of it together uh, in the next part of the story. And what we see in the next six verses is Jesus suddenly gets a bit of an obsession with donkeys. Um, He's really interested in them. Let's look at it together. Look at verse 2. So Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. At once you will find a, donkey t- uh, find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them. He will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the, say, daughter, to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. At the very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and covers cut branches and the trees and spread them on the road. What's happening there? What's with these donkeys? You know? Well, there's a lot of things going on here, um, and there's a lot of imagery happening, and we're just going to look at a few of those together. The first thing we see is Jesus here, he's being purposeful. Okay? He's got a point to make. I don't know if you've noticed this, as we've gone through the book of Matthew together, a lot of what Jesus has been doing has been reactionary. It's been in reaction to what people have been saying to him. Someone says, you know, I've got a problem, can you help? And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, I can help you. Or someone says, this boy has got a demon, Jesus? And he goes, yeah, okay, I'll cast that out. Uh, then you get these guys come up to him and go, hey, Jesus, when's it okay to get a divorce? And he goes, all right, sit down and let's talk this through. Let me explain to you. A lot of what Jesus is doing is responsive to people. But here, as he's arriving at Jerusalem, Jesus gets proactive and purposeful. Jesus is setting up a moment on purpose and he's controlling everything. He anticipates that there's going to be a couple of donkeys for his disciples to get when they enter the village. He even says to them, look, if someone asks you what's going on, just tell them this and things will be okay. Then you have it. And, and you can imagine the disciples, are you sure this is what's going to happen? Oh, well, we'll do it anyway. And as they do it, it plays out exactly as Jesus had said it would. What's happening here is by divine design. And it really hits home when you think, Hang on, Jesus, he hasn't ridden anywhere that we know of. I mean, he's everywhere we're told in Matthew, it, it says Jesus is walking everywhere. And if you were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you'd always be walking. What Jesus here 
isn't just like him saying, I'm tired, let's catch a taxi or a bus. It's not him saying, come on boys, it's hard work this, isn't it? Let's get a donkey into Jerusalem. That's not what's going on here. It's weird. It's strange. Jesus never did this. And in Mark's account, we know this isn't just any old donkey. This is a donkey which has never been sat on. What's that about? Well, in the Old Testament, an animal that was being used for God's purposes would have to have never been used for normal work before. It needs to be special. It needs to be separate. It needs to be how the Bible would describe it as holy. And so Jesus is saying, do you know what? I'm going to ride in and I need you guys to get me a special donkey. Go get it for me. But in none of the Gospels are we told anything that describes this donkey to us, which seems strange to me. I mean, we've got six verses here in Matthew, but nowhere does it say, and his name was Dobbin, and he eats apples. It doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us anything really about this donkey. Because it's all about how Jesus commandeered this animal. What's happening here is a practice which would have been very well known back then in the first century. And what it is, is it's a practice of if a king was riding into the city, he would commandeer an animal and ride it in. So Jesus is saying, I am coming to the city, but I'm not walking like any old pilgrim. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Commandeer me an animal, because I'm going to ride in on it. And when someone asks you why, tell them the Lord needs it. And this is interesting, because as I said earlier, all through Matthew's Gospel... Jesus has been evasive on his identity. He's been batting it away. He's been telling people when they've got it right, shh, keep it to yourself. Don't spread it around. And he often refers to himself in Matthew as the son of man, which has always been a funny phrase of, what does he mean by this? Does he mean son of man, Daniel 7, ruler of the universe? Or does he mean son of man, my dad's a dude? And Jesus was particularly vague on that issue. I mean, he'd pop up places and go, hey guys, son of man, forgive sins. What do you think about that? Bye. And then sneak off. And he'd be like, what are you doing, Jesus? He was slippery. You couldn't nail him down on it. But in the passage before, which I didn't read this morning, he's in Jericho, and there are a couple of blind men on the side of the road. And they hear the crowd and Jesus going past And they start crying out, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowds go, shh, shut up, keep quiet, stop disturbing. And so they cry out all the more, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. And this is important because the son of David is referring back to David who was was the greatest king in the Old Testament who ruled over uh, God's people. And he's told that there will become another king, one who's known as the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one of God, who's going to come, and he's going to be known as the son of David, who has a kingdom which will never end. And these blind guys call out to him, and they say, son of David. And Jesus' response, yeah, what can I do for you? And you can imagine the disciples, guys, What's with that? Is he suddenly getting more comfortable with his role? No, it's not that. It's that Jesus isn't disguising it anymore. And when Jesus 
gets to the city. And while the disciples are getting the donkey, he says, if anybody asks you why you're taking this, just tell them the Lord needs it. See, Jesus isn't disguising anything anymore. He's saying, this is your king, and I'm coming in to reign. There's no duck in the crowds. There's no hiding behind smoke and mirrors. There's no being slippery with it. His cards are on the table. Jesus is coming. He's staging an event. He could have just walked in, but he didn't. This is an event he's staging. It's the arrival of the great king. So he says, get me a donkey. Now I said earlier that Mark chapter 11 verse 2 says that this is a donkey which has never, ever been ridden. And in verse 7 of Matthew, it says he sits on the donkey. Now I don't know if you've ever tried sitting on a donkey which has never, ever been sat on. But that's some homework for you. You can go home, you can try that, and then please report back to me with what happens. Because I tell you what doesn't happen. If you jump on a donkey or any animal that's never been ridden on before, I tell you what they don't do. They don't go, where to, chief? (laughs) What does a donkey do? It bucks, it kicks, it tries everything it possibly can to get you off. To throw you off of its back because it's scared and it does not trust you. Animals have a problem with us. They're scared of us and often with good reason. Uh, A dead guy called George Whitfield says it like this. Why do animals growl and run? It's they know that you have a quarrel with their maker. Adam, the first man who was ever made by God, came into the world and all the animals came to him. And he named them and he managed them. But then he sinned. The world became a broken place. And there is now a fear and a disconnect between animals and human beings. I think that's why there's something amazing when you get an animal, a pet, to to trust you. There's something amazing in that. One author puts it like this. When you build a bond between you and an animal of trust, it's something that cannot be explained outside theology. He says there's a disconnect between animals and creation. They don't trust us with good reason because God said, run this world under my management, under my kingdom, and we didn't. And the animals see that and they go, That guy, he's a rogue manager and I don't trust him. And yet when Jesus comes over to this donkey who's never been sat on before, he submits himself to Jesus, the king. And what Jesus does here, it fits perfectly, I mean perfectly, with what a king would do back then. They would do five things. They would come in as their status recognized. There would be a formal entry into the city on the back of an animal. They would be greeted with acclaim. They would go to the temple and then they would participate in an act in that temple of either making a sacrifice to a god they loved or toppling over a statue of a god they didn't. And we see all five of those play out with Jesus here. He comes in under the banner of being known as the son of David. He rides in 
on the back of an animal. He's greeted with the claim, Hosanna, blessed is he who's in the name of the Lord. He rides straight to the temple and he participates in an act in that temple. He follows the rules of a king, but he jumps past them all and he surpasses them in that he rides an animal which no one has ever ridden. Because something amazing happens with this cult. This unpredictable, timid, skittish little animal suddenly becomes fearless. This donkey has never been ridden before. It doesn't buck. It doesn't fight Jesus. It walks calmly through the crowds of screaming people. Why? Because this little cult is fearless when Jesus is in the saddle of its life. Jesus is the King and Lord over all of creation. And yet we often feel fearful of Jesus being King and ruler over us. We think he's going to break us. He's going to be harsh with us. We try and kick back. We fight against him. Are you bucking against Jesus? Are you trying to fight him off? Or are you allowing Jesus to calmly and peacefully steer you through the screaming crowds of life? Be like the donkey in this passage. I've got one more donkey thing before we move on to the last bit of the passage. And and I want to say that Jesus rides this donkey for another reason. And Matthew tells us in verse 4, it's to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. It's to fulfill what... Old Testament scripture says. And what we see is that most kings would ride into a city on the back of an animal, but they would ride in on a big white horse, a stallion. They would at least ride in with something pulling a big chariot that made them look impressive. Everything that Jesus is doing here as he's coming into the city is him declaring, I am the king. And you can imagine the excitement on the disciples' faces. You know, when he says to them, boys, we're going in through the east of the city. Really? 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 Yes, really. And I'm going to ride in. He's going to ride in right to the temple. Right to the temple. Are you serious? Deadly serious. Deadly serious. Oh, son of David? Yes. <gasps> he said, son of David. And suddenly the penny drops. Suddenly they realize that the real Jesus himself is setting himself up to be king. He's going to come in. He's going to take over. And in their mind, he's going to kick butt. They think he's going to come in. He's going to kill all the Romans, set up a Jewish kingdom, destroy their enemies. And Jesus says, yes, I'm going to ride in. Grab me a donkey. And, and what we see here in Matthew is actually there's two donkeys. There's mummy donkey, big donkey, and there's baby donkey, little donkey. And, and you see Jesus, he's got the choice of the two donkeys. And, and we know he sits on the one that's never been written on. He sits on little donkey. He goes, I'm riding in, boys. See my steed. <laughs> and rides in. And you can think... You can imagine the disciples, what on earth? Jesus, you've got to sort your life out, man. I mean, c- 
come on, that's meant for a hobbit, not a king of the universe. Oh, what is he doing here? Well, Matthew tells us it's to fulfill what the prophet tells us in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah is prophesying about the arrival of an evil king coming through Palestine, destroying all the towns as he moves through the country. We see that he comes down and he destroys Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. You see this evil king coming on his mighty steed, destroying city after city after city as he moves from the north to the south. It would be like me telling you that there is an evil king coming here to destroy us, to kill us. He's in East Grinstead. He's moved down into Crowborough. The mighty towers of Uckfield have fallen. And he's coming for us. It's meant to be scary. It's terrifying. But the beauty of Zechariah is that God says he will surround his people and he will protect them. And that's what happened. If you know your history, sometime after uh, this prophecy was given, there was Alexander the Great, who was a Greek king. He came down and he destroyed all of those places. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, wiped them all, destroyed them, city after city. But when he got to Jerusalem, he did not destroy it. Zechariah chapter 9 is God saying, there are the kingdoms of men, I'm above them all. He's saying, in in, uh, Zechariah 9, he then goes on to say in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. God says, you have a king, and he's my king. He's a godly king who rules not just men, but he rules creation. And everyone desires a king. Everyone longs for a leader. Everyone wants that guy who's going to lead them, protect them, help them, guide them. Kings are a good idea. Because they manage to rule government, set up things quickly. And a good king will help government, will help a country, and will help individuals. But every king and dictatorship throughout history has gone wrong. Why? Because a king ends up getting too much power, ends up getting arrogant, and abuses come in. That's why every king in history has fallen short. We see abuses and murder. It's why there have been so many... Uh, revolts and revolutionaries throughout history. It's why there are problems even now in dictatorships around the world. And Zechariah and Matthew say, but see your king. Your king is mighty. He's the perfect characteristic which no human king has ever fully held. He's mighty and yet he's meek. He's great and yet he's gentle. He's powerful yet he doesn't come to destroy. If you're a king, if you're a Christian here, that's your king. That's your king. He doesn't come to destroy his people. He comes in and he enters straight into the temple. And we'll see more next 
next time we look at the real Jesus and we're in Matthew, that he comes into the temple and he kicks everybody out for selling animals and money changing. He kicks them all out and he sets up there and he teaches for a week. He kicks out all of the animal sacrifice. Why does he do that? Why does he kick them out? That's what the temple's for, isn't it? It's to slaughter animals so that you can be right with God. And you see Jesus come in and go, stop it guys, shut up, sit down, I've got something to tell you. Ultimately what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's taking their place. In the Bible, the, the essence of sin is described as people who are meant to be servants setting themselves up as the king. That's sin. It's where you say, I want to rule my own life. I don't want anything to do with you, God. I don't want you to be a ruler over me. But salvation is where the king himself comes in and makes himself a servant. He's so powerful. He's so mighty. He's so great. And yet he's humble, peaceful, and yet gentle. And when that guy, the true king, the real Jesus himself, grabs hold of you, and you realize how terrible you've been, when someone that great has to come down to sort out your problems the things that you've done wrong, when you realize how helpless you are without him, you feel incredibly small. But when you see the real Jesus, the king of creation is humble enough and gentle enough to take your sin upon himself and to die in your place. You see the humility and you realize I'm love more than I could ever have hoped for. The beauty of the real Jesus and the good news of who he is as the true king is that you were so bad that the only way was for the king himself to come down to make himself a servant to save you. But we are so loved that he did it. He rode in on a donkey into a place where he was going to die as a sacrifice to save you. And as he rides into the city, we see that people lay down their cloaks on the road as a sign of kingships, and people lay down palm leaves and wave them at him. And if you're thinking, Jack, what was, what was with the palm leaves? Why did you wave them when you first became a Christian at this church? Well, it would be like a revolutionary coming in and everyone waving the flag of their nation. You see, Israel at the time was under the rule of the Romans. And so waving a palm leaf, which the palm tree represents Israel, was like a sign of insurrection. Take that, Rome. This is our king. This is the real king of us. And we see that everything the crowds cry out from verse 9 onwards... Everything they say is true. Hosanna to the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the king who's coming into his town to set himself up as the solution. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the blessed one who comes under God. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, it means save us. And Jesus has come to save. And yet what they're looking for is not someone who's coming in to die for them. Not someone who's going to call them to repentance. Not someone who's asking them to live a life of humility. What they're looking for is a political leader. Someone who's going to crush their enemies. That's why when you read Luke's account of it, it says you look at the crowds, they're celebrating. But if you focus in on Jesus' face, he's weeping. He's crying. He says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which means city of peace. He says, if only you knew what would really give you peace. But you don't but you don't. He says you're looking at politics, you're looking at economics, you're looking at someone to crush all your enemies. You're not looking for it in me. Someone who's going to crush your true enemies of Satan, sin and death. You're not looking for it in me where you find God himself through repentance and faith. You're not willing to do that. So as we close, I just want to say two things. First, if you've never decided to follow Jesus as the true king, here in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is forcing an issue, just standing at a fork in the roads. All through his earthly ministry, he's been meek, he's been mild, he's been lowly, and here he rides in and he says, I am the king. His whole performance is to show you, I am the king. And in doing that, he's pushing you to one of two responses. Either you crown him as the king or you crucify him as a clown. He comes in, he says, I'm the king. He says, I'm not a religious teacher. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a nice guy. I'm not even just the prophet that you think I am in in verse 11 of of this chapter. He says, I'm the king. He says, I'm the king of Jerusalem. I'm the king of creation. And I'm the king of you. What are you going to do? Crown me or crucify me? You can't ignore me. You need to decide. Because Jesus Christ, the real Jesus, he's coming again. And the next time he comes, it won't be on a donkey. It will be on a white horse. The king will return. And he will come. And he will crush his enemies, and we're told that when he arrives on the Mount of Olives, it will break in two. So you need to decide, are you going to crown him or crucify him? And lastly, if you are a Christian, I want to ask, are you following the real king? The real king? Or are you doing what the people are doing in this passage? Because they were hoping for a political leader. And someone who's going to change something else in their life. And after a week of him being around, they end up crucifying him. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. Are you following the real Jesus, the one who came to destroy your true enemies of Satan, sin, and death? Because we're called to follow and worship the real king, the real Jesus himself, the, the one who is king of the universe, powerful yet humble, Great yet gentle. The one who has died, has risen, and will come again 
the real Jesus himself, the king of heaven and earth. And I think we've got time. I think it would be just the perfect way to end would be by worshipping Jesus together. We're going to get Andy and the band to come up and we're going to worship Jesus just with one song, declaring him as the king that he says he is in Matthew chapter 21.